colloquium, everyday, uh, everyone. Uh, today, we're going to have Ross Sazani present, and I'm really excited to introduce her. Um, she's originally from Italy, where she received a BS and MS in Biological Sciences from the University of Pavia. Uh, she then went on to earn a PhD in Genetics and Molecular Biology from the same university before moving to North Carolina to do a postdoc at Duke, and I think a research stint there as well. And then uh, in 2013, I believe, she joined the faculty at NC State as a cluster hire um, in the Department of Plant and Microbial Biology. And she's been very productive here since then. And her um, focus of her research is on translating basic science of root stem cell fate in Arabidopsis to engineering plants with enhanced agronomic function, which is why we thought she would be appropriate addition to our um, colloquium series. And uh, during her tenure here, to, uh, she's been awarded with a Faculty Scholar Award and also an Early Career Scientist Award from the Company of Biologists. And today she's actually doing her promotion seminar later today. So we, um, we really appreciate that you are sharing this day with us. Um, and uh, without, I won't talk anymore. I'll let Ross um, take it away. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And um, yes, she just told you that you're my guinea pigs uh, for my rehearsal talk. So bear with me um, and wish me luck. If you want to double up time with me, I'll see you at 4 p.m. tonight. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna share uh, my screen. I'm gonna share the sound and I'm gonna start talking in a second. You will see the presentation mode. There you go. So the only difference between this talk and the talk today is how I am gonna um, discuss things and the title. So the title is uh, From Basic Science to Engineering Tools to Translate Research. So let me, uh, from this title, tell you what I am passionate about and I'm passionate about for about the past 15 years of my scientific career about the right growth in plants. And so to me, it is extremely important to understand what is the right growth in other words, um, what limits plant growth? And if you're asking why, my motivation is because growth is a major component of fitness of all organisms and is a central determinant of um, yield crops. So the current needs to increase crop productivity for food and fuel due to the rapidly increasing population is well-documented. Uh, food production must increase by 70% and is urgent. We need to do it between now and 2050. But we have this uh, uh, problem. We have uh, more, we need more food for a growing population, but we have less land and we need to really um, stop harming our environment. And so from the why to the how can we feed more people, given that crop yields are no longer keeping pace with population growth? Well, the how was proposed, so the process by which we are going to feed more people was proposed about a decade ago um, with the term of the second green revolution where to increase yield and to improve the nutritional quality, we need to use in a targeted way, genetics, genomics, and technology uh, development. And so what I wanted to tell you next is what? So I told you the why, I told you the how, what, um, what, what is the product? How can we increase growth? Well. Let me tell you first that at its most fundamental level, uh, growth can be defined as increase in plant mass over time. And what we know is that the proximate causes of growth rate variation are due to internal factor and external factor, where 
externally, plant growth um, is affected by a plethora of uh, abiotic and biotic um, factors, which include nutrients, uh, temperature, and pests. And internally, um, plant growth is constrained by molecular, cellular, uh, physiological, and developmental processes. So for us, uh, it is important to acquire an holistic view of the growth at the whole plant scale. And how we are going to do this is by incorporating a mechanism between mechanistic interaction between plant physiology and uh, plant development. And so my interest was always to look at plant growth from a system level understanding. And so with this, uh, such of a system level understanding really relies on bringing together multiple disciplines and so the way that uh, uh, my research and uh, um, my interest uh, relies on is to bring together multiple disciplines to address questions that have not yet been or were not um, addressed yet. And so the one that are related to internal factor, and this is also gonna work as the outline for today's talk, the internal factor and key developmental and biological question that when I started my group at NC State were not yet uh, um, addressed is really understand how plants initiate and maintain growth so that we can understand the right growth. And also we immediately uh, also realized that uh, because we are dealing with a multicellular organism is to understand how cells communicated with each other but also how they interface with the environment. And so this has been my past and current uh, research portfolio. And then what I'm gonna tell you, and I'm gonna spend more uh, time uh, for the GES um, colloquium about the external factor and how we're really learning lesson learned from our basic science so that we can translate our knowledge of plant growth into food security and then a very uh, close to me uh, and a lot of other uh, people at NC State, how can the environment be made sustainable for future generations? So you're going to see kind of like two parts of my talk today. The one part that is more on the fundamental science. So the... Um, understanding of the overall regulation so that if we understand that um, we can manipulate developmental processes. And then you will see the other half of the talk where what we learned was to develop predictive model. And so how we are now using this predictive model to enable the transition and the translation um, from basic uh, science into more of applied science. So going to the first part of um, the talk, the more internal factor, let me give you kind of like also a layout of this uh, talk at the bottom right where you're seeing the page number, you're gonna see a couple of icons. Either is this cute plant is the model plant Arabidopsis that we're using a lot in my research lab. And then if you're also seeing these crop uh, plants, uh, vegetable crop plants, is because the model system there now is not a Arabidopsis, but is a uh, crop plants. So the talk will indicate whether the science is done on a Arabidopsis or other plants. And so the very first question of the internal factor, how do plants initiate and maintain growth? Well, this is a big question. And so what I'm gonna what I'm gonna try to do is to divide it into two and tell you what we have contributed towards the answer of this question, as well as um, knowing what were the technology uh, limitation, how we develop new tools uh, and new technology. And so uh, the very first part is about uh, 
how plants initiate and maintain growth is uh, relates back to how cells uh, divide so that they can proliferate and build the mass of the plant, but also the initiate. So how cell acquire their identity. That means that eventually the cell will have a specific function that is important for the overall uh, plant function and plant uh, growth. And what we learn a lot is that um, how you initiate and maintain growth is a very dynamic process. And so what we are studying here is rate, a dynamic process. So we had to develop a lot of tools that would really track rate over time and space. And so because we had to really uh, address a critical problem in development, a four-dimensional problem, right? Growth is in time and is in space. We reduce our, say, complexity by using a tractable system, which is the Arabidopsis root. The Arabidopsis root has a lot of features that reduce complexity. You can reduce the dimension of time, because time can be just tracked over time along the longitudinal axis of the root. Stem, um, the stem cell are located at the tip of the root, they divide, so you can really follow that uh, daughter cells are closer to the stem cell, the granddaughter cells are then displaced farther on, and et cetera, et cetera. And then you can also reduce complexity on a three-dimensional space because the root has radial symmetry. And so you can kind of like picture as you see here in two dimension. And when we started um, at about 2013, this is from a, um, a review paper from one of my graduate students, we only had information about a handful of regulator for the initiation and the uh, growth of these model system. So with that, we first um, kind of like asked the question and made sure that say, if we want to start initiation, we would start from the building block of a multicellular organism, in this case, the root. So we would start the building block of multicellular organism or stem cells. So we're starting from stem cell and ask the question whether stem cells are different from non-stem cell. So the way that you can look at this is by doing gene expression profile. So we identify um, specific stem cell uh, genes that are important for the initiation and the growth of these multicellular organisms. We also identified that there's kind of like a gradient in terms of stemness and therefore, plant growth is in, extremely important that the gradient of stemness and the gradient of differentiation, so when a cell uh, acquires the end stage function that has it, is very nice uh, balance so that you don't have an abnormal growth. And then here is knowing that there were only few regulators we started to investigate whether, knowing that stem cells are transcriptionally different from the rest of the root, whether we could identify additional players so that we could understand better the concept of uh, growth. And so what I'm showing here is just a plethora of images that represent the kind of data that we acquired. Those are quantitative data of gene expression, either over time, that means say every four hours, eight hours, one day, or over developmental time, as I told you, time in the Arabidopsis root is uh, a progression of time, as well as we leverage uh, fluorescent markers that have specific expression in the different stem cell for our um, spatial representation of all the different stem cells. So um, what, we, what we have at this point, uh, um, and so what I'm going to present from now onwards is the work that we have done in the past three years and that we're going to go in and do in the next few years. So when you have these quantitative data, 
their reach. They can be interpreted in as many ways that you want. You can make correlation. Uh, and from this correlation, uh, assume specific aspect or better if you make causation relationship so that you know that if you're changing something and that something regulates a target, you will change also the target. Why causational uh, prediction is more important than correlation, it allows us to really understand what key regulator to manipulate to manipulate the process of growth and development. And so just to make it on an anecdotal um, aspect, if you eat gelato, I could correlate or assume that you are an Italian person. Now, that correlation could be a great assumption if you're dealing with Ross. Since I'm an Italian, I eat gelato, your correlation is spot on. But what if you're not Italian, but you still like gelato? So the causational aspect will add with the power of statistics and um, proba probability approach, add additional information. So that you say, I'm eating a gelato in Italy, I assume that I'm Italian. So what I'm gonna show you is that the probabilistic uh, approaches that we're using, the statistics approaches that we're using are adding additional confidence in terms of the causal relationship of things. And so having said that is again, you're right, if uh, I'm eating a gelato and I'm in Italy and I'm Italian, but still, Keep in mind that there, there could be still some people that are tourists in Italy and eating a gelato. So what I'm presenting is the best thing we can do so far in terms of the prediction. And a, a very good friend and colleague of mine say, and, and this is extremely important for when we also want to translate these approaches into crop science, when you are dealing and it's a big statement, but when you're dealing with uh, quantitative data and when you're dealing with uh, specific algorithm or computational approaches, you can have that garbage in, garbage out. That means that you can use whatever data and come up with whatever, I would say, uh, prediction. What you need to do, you need to be careful of what are the data that go in so that your computational pipeline predicts the best that it can, the right outcome. So with that, what I'm gonna show you here on the left and on the right is given the specific data that we have, given the specific biological question that we had, we had to design the computational approaches the best suited so that we were getting a very high confidence, for example, of the causal relationship between uh, regulators and their target. And so I'm going to show you a couple of examples without spending much time on the, I would say, uh, example per se, but we develop a machine learning, a regression tree with random forest approach to really understand of these 3,000 stem cell um, specific genes of which um, a third or less were regulators and the other were the target, how they, I would say, what is the relationship among them? And so what you're seeing here is a regulatory network of all of these 3000 genes, as well as we, we use probabilistic model and dynamic vision principle, given that we had time course data so that we could confidently uh, assign a probability in terms of if I make any change on these regulator, how that will affect the downstream genes of these regulator. And I'm going to give you another example of how we use these specific dynamic vision networks. So going back to the uh, unsupervised approach, what that allow us to identify was the orchestra director for the coordinated division and growth of the stem cell. So it was always 
um, an intriguing question to me of how multicellular organisms coordinate the rate of division of cell A versus cell B and versus cell C, importantly for plant, because you have a cell wall, so you really need to have the one cell divides while the other one is ready to get um, in, in the right division competency and et cetera, et cetera. And we identify the key regulator that is expressed in all of these stem cells, but is expressed such that just a, a level higher uh, compared to a specific threshold, and it turns on or off, it regulates specific uh, target in a stem cell, and then it turns off, and then it turns on in another cells, and it does the same job. So it has the same job, but the, the, the cells, the transcription, the genes that are downstream of these master regulator know when to turn it on. So it's like the example anecdotally with an orchestra director, you have all of your instrument, but no, they know exactly when they, to turn on and sound and when to turn off based on the movement of the ends of the orchestra director. And so in our cases, based on the expression level, higher or lower compared uh, to a specific threshold. And so how we got to this point was to also use uh, mathematical models. And so we have a computational approach that predicts causal relationship given the quantitative data that we input, but we also use mathematical model like a mechanistic model to really understand the dynamics and predict the dynamics. And so here I'm just going to show you how then identifying this player allow us to identify other players that are really helping us to unravel how all these coordinated division are depending on specific signals. Now, the predictive uh, aspect of gene regulatory network can serve to the Arabidopsis stem cell, but what I'm also showing here is how we are quickly translating these uh, um, approaches in non-model plant. And in this case was to ask the question of cell division, cell identity, and uh, I would say um, reassessment of their spatial location by using grafting. So the grafting is you just kind of like uh, take a plant, you can cut it, you take the shoot and the root, then you can put them back. So those are called self-grafting if you're using the same species, or if they are um, in between two different plants, say tomato and pepper, those are heterographs. So that you can use the shoot of a tomato and the root of a pepper or vice versa. And so the question now is, uh, um, we know how if we do grafting on the same self-grafting species, the cell then relearn how to communicate, they readjust and they reform the connection so that the shoot is in uh, uh, communication with the root. But we also know that uh, if you take a tomato and a pepper, there are incompatible grafting. That means that the connection are no longer um, reestablished. And so you, you, it is a critical and important question for an agricultural, uh, agricultural um, direction. But we had to identify who are the player for this reconnection to take in place. So we started to use uh, this uh, probabilistic dynamic network to identify uh, the molecular regulatory network that support these kind of like hubs for compatible versus incompatible uh, graft. And this is a Sankey diagram of all the different uh, hubs between pepper, pepper, tomato, tomato, and how we learn what is in common and what is not in common between these two plants. And then we started to using, of course, gene expression profile at different time after the grafting, say one day, three days, or seven days, identify the causal relationship with what was missing, not only from the genes, as I showed you before, but from the relationship um, for the formation or non-formation of these uh, grafting. And so by comparing and contrasting self-grafting network with heterografting, what we identify was 
a key regulator. And so what you're seeing here is uh, tomato uh, plants which were mutated for this specific regulator, which we identified to have an important role in the reconnection of the communication. So you can see really how we are moving the, the, this computational tool from Arabidopsis into more agronomical important uh, crops and really allow us to pinpoint and to identify through causal relationship the player, the most important regulator for this specific um, connection. So we're, we're moving from if I'm eating an ice cream and I'm in Italy and I speak Italian, then I must be an Italian. So we, we're getting down to um, a very level and very high level of precision, which is important for a non-model organism because it takes time to uh, obtain mutants uh, and so on and so forth. Now we're doing the same uh, where we are using both the unsupervised machine learning approach that I show you at the beginning that allow us to identify the orchestra director as well as we're using dynamic vision network because um, the, I show you for the tomato pepper grafting for rice. And the reason why is because we have uh, a very large and uh, um, high temporal um, data set that is based on gene expression as well as the level above of gene expression. So the chromatin status. So now we are using regulatory network to infer who is the major regulator in rice under a specific uh, treatment that is a normal treatment, cytokinin. We are comparing what we are learning from these experiments, what is similar between a monocotyledon and a dicot. So Arabidopsis, our dicot, model plant, and a monocot, so that we can start to really uh, understand what diverge between uh, different uh, plants. In addition, we are adding additional layers of information like the chromatin status, which always helps to get to the best confidence in your prediction model. I'm an Italian. I'm eating my gelato. I am, um, no, sorry. I'm eating my gelato. I'm in Italy. I speak Italian. I was born in Italy. I'm an Italian, right? So that's the level of precision that we need to achieve in order for us to quickly translate these tools and technique into crop science. And so this is, um, and I'm gonna look at the time. Okay, so this is what uh, is about the tools that we have developed so far in terms of the causal relationship that mostly rely on understanding the gene regulation so that we can really manipulate development. And the important aspect that I wanted to put here is that I'm proud of, and it's important and proud of my uh, student and postdoc is I've been extremely fortunate to have a very interdisciplinary group uh, um, from electric and computer engineers, student and postdoc, from plant biologists, from uh, biochemists, uh, and et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, we uh, fluently converse different languages, but at the same time, there is a lot of coding, a lot of understanding, a lot of mathematical um, knowledge behind all of the algorithm that we develop and we use to address our specific question. And so it was a challenge for me that I had for my student and postdoc to make these capability really open to the plant science community. And so what you see is when we are building these uh, script, this platform, when we put the statistic behind for specific question, we always have an outlook into how we can incorporate these uh, tools in a graphical user interface so that you have your own data. You are the most expert in terms of your biological question, and you can use these uh, uh, platform so that you can just input your data and get the output uh, uh, using the algorithm that are running in the background. Having said that, a very good friend of mine, I'm going to take a break because Zoom are, are difficult to handle. Um, 
a very good friend of mine has given me the characteristic of what I do and who am I. And so um, this very best uh, friend and colleague says that I'm extremely friendly, so I collaborate a lot. I'm extremely quantitative. By now I've said quantitative data a billion times. She also said that I'm extremely stubborn. I consider that in a positive way, not in a negative way, completely stubborn in terms of a determinate. If there is a gap, if there is a barrier, I want to overcome this barrier. I'm not gonna want to feel defeated. And so what you're gonna see throughout this talk is the missing component, the barrier that we had so far that we couldn't really advance our understanding. And so the missing component as Ross Stubborn is to identify how cells communicate with each other. See, gene expression, when you're doing RNA-seq gene expression, you really don't know whether um, a protein moves from one cell and another. And in plant science, we know that protein movement is a must in terms of cell communication. So the second part of the talk um, helps me addressing the cell-to-cell -cell communication and the cell communication with the environment and what we have developed that was in terms of technique that were not yet available and now they are used by a large group, number of groups. So um, we adopted and we put into plant from the field of uh, scanning fluorescent correlation spectroscopy, different technique that it would allow us to quantitatively in vivo and at the cellular resolution, quantify the protein movement and quantify the protein interaction. Why this is important, we had few years that show how protein movement of moving transcription factor are important, for example, for the establishment of the identity, but we remain with one question. What is the causal uh, relationship between protein movement and division or protein-protein interaction and division. Can we explain why two cells that have the same um, amount of a moving protein in the cell and they have the same exact players, they do divide at a different rate. And so we could explain by using this imaging technique that these two cells, even if the movement of the protein are the same, even if the proteins levels are the same. In these two different cells, the protein form different protein complex. So what we had in cell A, we had four different protein complexes. In cell B, we had two protein complexes only. And the absence of the two other protein complexes, stoichiometry, is what allowed the cell to divide faster compared to the other one, which maintain a lot of quiet like a, a, a quiescence, uh, and indeed it's called the quiescence center. And so what we could do is to acquire all these quantitative data and shuffling into our mechanistic model. And so the, the very first things that the lesson learned for all of the scientists is you start from the simplest model. And then if you cannot really explain things or if you have new urgent question, you can add information to the model. So to our model, um, we added the stoichiometric complex of these uh, two important regulators we model, and we could predict indeed that because of the difference in stoichiometry, we had different division. We also learned that not only these two players were explaining what we were seeing, so we went back. And this is the beauty of the, the process that we have set in place. We acquire data. We put them into mathematical model. The mathematical model makes prediction. We validate them. We understand, we learn something else is missing. We go back to acquire more quantitative data so that we can put it back into the model. And the model evolves. And that is, is not just an iteration, but is really the opportunity to improve and evolve on the model. So we identify this new player and then I think, I think when my postdoc presented this to me, I think a little tears of happiness uh, um, came down because we were, for the very first time, being able to build 
a um, multi-scale model, an ivory multi-scale model that would, ex that would incorporate uh, gene expression, that would incorporate uh, stoichiometry, protein movement. And so we had this ivory model that is based on a mechanistic or the differential equation model. Um, and then, oh, I'm having a problem with, uh, hold on. I need to unshare for a second. My screen is just flashing at me. I'll share it in a second. There you go. Okay. So, so these uh, mechanistic model, as well as an agent-based model that could first introduce information about the cells. And so now we know exactly at the critical resolution without um, measurement uh, that one cell divides every 24 hours and the other cells divides every 32 hours. And you would ask me, why on the planet a eight hour difference is so significant? And I'm gonna show you what we had and what we accomplished and what we did next with increasing technology, with the increasing knowledge we know, and the answer is right here on the bottom, why eight hours are so important. Why time is so important for, say, a stem cell to divide, to acquire its own specific identity, to then be and start to be specialized and reach the end stage differentiation. That means a specific function and role. There are about 72 hours of life of this stem cell in the Arabidopsis root to be a completely functional differentiated cells. This is the example of the phloem of the Arabidopsis root. And I'm gonna add a little bit more details, but what I wanted to say is this could just be a red blood cells. What a phloem cells does in about 23 cells, it divides, it learns what to do, it it differentiates and then at a very late differentiation loses the nuclei like uh, red blood cells. 70 hours, 23 cells. It is important for us to understand this fundamental rate of division because each rate of division is telling the molecular mechanism at each point. And so how we did get to this point, which were to really have a precise progression from cell division to differentiation. And this is important for when we're talking about organs, because this links tissue maturation for cell specification. We started to do single cell gene expression profile. We could put all of our network in place. We did a pseudo developmental trajectory. We could map at each cell the gene involved in all of these uh, specific division or end-stage differentiation. We now know that there are more for gene-like. At the beginning, in 2017, we were extremely proud of ourselves to look how, oh, there is a, a stemness gradient and that interface the differentiation gradient. In this case now, we know exactly who are the players in these morphogen-like gradient. And now we can really address and ask the question, those are intrinsic signal, how these intrinsic signal are reconnected, re-network in experiment where, for example, we challenge with extrinsic signal. And in this case here um, is uh, adding iron deficiency, for example. Now, what we did miss, again, stubborn Ross, we could make the model prediction. We can follow over time, a thousand and thousand of hours, looking timestamps of uh, confocal images of the root. Uh, we thought, is there a better way to acquire all of these imaging data in a less time, in a more continuous way, so that we can track over time? So we partnered together with an engineer here at NC State, and we. Uh, develop our microfluidics device so that we can grow an image using uh, a system that is the light sheet microscopy that gives less phototoxicity so that you can image your route over time, over days, and track all of these uh, 
uh, information. Now, all of this information, now you get a different level of problems where it's not the human, the person, the student, the postdoc spending hours and hours, hours, hours at the confocal, but now it have in four days, you get all of this data, but they are massive amount of data. And so what we, what we did is to develop uh, software that could automatically analyze the data. And with this combination of knowledge, hardware, software formation, we could really now ask question of how multicellular organism, how plant growth is able to prioritize, integrate, different signal. And then I think I'm gonna um, spend one more minute to tell you how we're um, doing the extraordinary, like uh, the provost uh, new strategic campaign, is how can we test all of these uh, um, interaction of cell-to-cell -cell communication and positional information. And this was, um, uh, the program in my lab that we started about in my group, uh, that we started a couple of years coordinatively with uh, um, phenomenal engineers at NC State uh, um, in the mechanical and aerospace uh, department. Uh, I, I joke here because most of you will know, most of you will not know, but it will be now is, is my husband that you're seeing there so that I can always say nice things. And he jokes a lot that he says, I can never say no to Ross when she says, could we do this with 3D bioprinting? And so how can we test model prediction of the rules of arrangement of the um, cells? So what I'm gonna show here and the video is showing it is we can now really play cells. They recapitulate the gradients and the cell type specific regulation. And now we can really interrogate the rules of morphogen pattern. And I'm so proud to present these data because they are the hard work of phenomenal student and postdoc in my lab for the past two years. They have dedicated so much with these high risk, but I hope it will be a high reward project where we are the very first one that we can 3D bioprint plant cells we had to set up system and learn from a lot of mistakes on how to keep those cells alive, how we can keep these cells that are in the stemness gradient, so in the meristematic versus differentiated zone of the root alive, how we can track division of those cells over a plethora and a series of days uh, both in the meristematic cells and in the differentiated cells so that we can start to ask specific question, how we can from a 3D bioprinted cells follow division and also achieve after three weeks or so uh, microcalli formation and how it is so important because I talked from the very beginning how to initiate and maintain growth, but also maintain the identity, how we are able for specific marker, um, they have a specific expression and they have a, a specific identity, how we can follow the identity of those cells over time when they start to divide and when they form their um, calli. So with these, we are not far, but now we can really set up a system where we investigate question about, say, stem cell maintenance. We put, we, we 3D print different stem cell. If we had additional stem cell, say in the xylem or in the vasculature, will these cells maintain their stemness? Will they divide or will not divide? And we learn a lot from the past. All of these predictive models are based on all the gene expression, temporal and uh, spatial gene expression profile that we have uh, acquired. They're all based on the imaging um, data that we have acquired, all of the imaging that are representing the morphology of the cell. So we know exactly how many cells are in this uh, structure and what is the communication of these cells uh, so that we can really 
ask questions in terms of positional information. Can you take a stem cell and move it in another position? Will that stem cell acquire, maintain, or change their identity? And we can now do that because we are setting and putting in place a single cell gene expression profile of all of these mimic constructs so that we can go back to what we have learned from using single cell gene expression profiling the Arabidopsis root and address this question. And so um, with that, I think I'm gonna stop here. I already know that for my promotion talk, I need to cut things down. <laughs> <laughs> another 20 slide. So thank you for being my guinea pigs. Um, but, but what is going to be next is how we are really translating all of these. But I need to do one more thing. I just need to share one important uh, slide because I just saw the face of Kara. And um, one way um, that, oh, no. Never mind. Come on. We should all be pro by now, right? Nope, clearly not. By now, how we can bring uh, basic research, how the, the fundamental research can inform uh, tools development, and how we can apply these tools, and how we can really have. Um, a sense of adoption of these uh, tools is also through this new innovative and important convergent research center for which there are a lot of us at NC State in addition to other faculty at other partner institutions that is a science technology center for phosphorus sustainability. And so if you just um, look at my new share is, uh, Step Center uh, has a website. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to release the slide that I presented today where there is the link. This is key, is a truly innovative center and is a great opportunity to bring us all together in a truly convergent and interdisciplinary um, space. And so with that, let me go into the acknowledgement. Um, and so I didn't talk about the second part of my talk, but I hope that uh, what I've shown you and our approaches to study plant growth and development at the fundamental level are really now translating into crop science and really um, achieving what we all want that is uh, um, food security. And so all of these are all the um, collaboration that I have that I had, didn't have time to present. And uh, this is the class of 2018 to 2021. Uh, then I need to thank postdoc graduate student, uh, research assistant undergraduate student uh, in the lab the last three years. Uh, um, and I take any question. Thank you. Um, so if everyone who would like to ask a question can either raise your hand or if you would like to ask it yourself without typing it, uh, yeah, raise your hand. If you have earbuds or headphones, please put those on. It'll make the audio um, better quality for everyone to understand. If you feel better um, typing in the chat, go ahead and do that and we can read the questions out. Uh, and so, so thank you, Sarah, for putting in the chat, the website. Uh, for steps. Yeah, so that was a really interesting talk. And while we're waiting for people to um, gather their um, questions and whatnot, I have a question. And that is, you talked a lot about interdisciplinarity and your experience with it and how you're um, going about working in an interdisciplinary space. The GES Center is also obviously very focused on interdisciplinarity. And I think one difference I see between your experiences and, and the way we typically think about it is that you're um, incorporating a lot of different elements of scientific disciplines. And we, we tend to think more on uh, you know, incorporating humanities more yeah. often than not. So could you explain to people who maybe 
don't have a great science background who are more on the humanities and social sciences side, um, why having disparate disciplines of science is still interdisciplinary? Yes, so let, let me tell you, Jennifer, that uh, it is indeed one portion of having an interdisciplinary approach, the one that I presented where with interdisciplinary approach, we bring in in our, just the scientific, uh, the, the natural science of aspect. The human science, it is critical and is extremely important. And one example is the step center. And the other part of my talk that I didn't present was more on the human um, science and that level of interdisciplinarity is because when you're moving into an applied uh, research, you really uh, need to understand the aspect of stakeholder that will adopt that kind of application. There will be understanding of that application. So the economic, the society, the societal as well as the economical aspect of things, if we want to uh, feed a growing population is of a key importance. And I didn't touch it into this talk, but it is uh, what I'm really learning and appreciating in the last two to three years. And indeed, one of the efforts is the steps and other efforts are GRIP for PSI uh, research that uh, are really, for example, the fun crops uh, is a group for PSI led by Christine Ox that really is looking at the plant microbe interaction and how, um, because microbiology and microbes, beneficial microbes could be a disruptive uh, technology, how are the public and the, um, say, group of farmers and growers are going to be acceptive of the use of beneficial endophytic fungi in their research. So all of these, I think, are the spectrum of what is truly interdisciplinary research. And the example is STEPS, is a convergence center because it has a um, research that will impact the society and the economy. I don't know if I answer your question. Uh, it looks like Eli has a question. Eli, can you unmute yourself? Hi, Rob. Eli, I saw your face coming up when I was presenting the 3D bioprinting. I knew and I know that this is going to be a question about the 3D bioprinting. Let me see if I assume well. No? I wasn't going to ask about that. It's, it's like the I'm eating a gelato and I'm Italian. Uh, it's uh, a correlation. Uh, I, I guess I had a, more of a general question. Um, so I think ev everyone sort of likes to say translating things from the lab to the field is a huge issue. Um, you showed uh, like you're really improving the quality of systems biology in the lab. Um, does that help improve the chances of knowing what will translate to the field or yes. in a sense, make it harder? Brilliant. So let me, that gives me the opportunity to go back to one of my slides that I didn't present because you have an excellent point. And the excellent point is, and I don't need to go into a, um, we, we, we have uh, a funded FFAR uh, grant, amazing USDARS uh, analog and VIB. Uh, if this met, what we're doing is exactly what you're saying. Can we actually use the same tools? Can we actually develop this predictive model and move from the lab, to the greenhouse, to the field? So this is an example of what we're doing where we are collecting, um, we, we are collecting data from the greenhouse, oh, right here it is, from the greenhouse as well as uh, uh, from the field. So, what is the challenge there is in the greenhouse, we can have all of our uh, soybeans subjected to uh, temperature increases, a control environment in the field. What Anna had to do, and what also the grant is uh, supported from, especially from the um, soybean commodity group, is to build uh, plots that would increase the temperature in the field 
um, more or less the delta that we have in the greenhouse. So now we are collecting data, quantitative data from the greenhouse. We're also uh, acquiring physiological data from the greenhouse and from the field we're uh, acquiring the physiological data. Now in the field, what we can also do is because we are focusing on acquiring physiological data there, add additional um, genetic um, genotype or um, plant with different specific variations so that we can screen more plants and really understand uh, what is the um, plant that is more thermotolerant and has a high production of protein. So we are doing that because it's a key question. It looks like that Simit has his hand raised. Simit, can you um, lower your hand? Um, Hi. Hi, that was a great talk. Um, and my question is kind of like follows from what Eli talked about in terms of like, you know, the experiments translating the research from lab to the field setting. And I was thinking about, you know, so if I understood correctly, like, you know, the goal, the broader goal is to identify who are the players that determine how cells develop and how plants grow, you know, like what are the genes involved? Uh, what are the transcription, uh, transcription factors and all the different little pieces that go and identify what they do um, and how they do it kind of things. Um, I was thinking like, you know, how, um, if this is part of your research and, you know, you didn't present the second half of your talk, but I was just wondering if this is part of the research. Like, so if I imagine like, you know, outside in field, you get, you know, you can get two weeks of constant rain, like heavy rain every day, or you could get like no rain for, you know, three weeks in a day. So there's like huge environmental variation in mm -hmm. that plant's experience. Um, and I imagine that, you know, things like that, or, you know, like someone, like a wild animal digs up a plant roots or something. So in random, like these stochastic environmental factors, mm -hmm. um, do you expect that those would change who are the players that determine how cells grow or who they go? And is that part of the... Research. Well, so that's, a, again, an excellent question and um, allows me to show you <laughs> one other slide. I think I need to switch my talk, but uh, the, 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 to your question, I don't have an answer, but we are set up to address that question. And the question is, there are efforts, and one of these is uh, led uh, by Kranos is how we can accelerate the translation to address that question specifically in terms of uh, is there too much water, too little water, is there past uh, or et cetera. We are uh, planning or the, the, the intention is uh, to acquire and to develop sensor that will be deployed so that you can have clear understanding of the condition over time that will be matched with say climate uh, data, um, you will have a lot of uh, phenotyping, say drone with uh, RGB, hyperspectral hyper imaging. You will have all of these quantitative data that then go into uh, machine learning, neural network, deep learning approaches that will tell us what are the key aspect of uh, uh, a specific phenotype given all of these inputs. So that to that question, are stochastic event going to be affecting our outcome of increased yield or nutritional content? The answer will be only answer with all of these quantitative data acquired in time and in time and space with the different crops. Because this is part of the gap analysis that we have uh, um, identify, right? All of these uh, uh, data in the lab, gene expression, high throughput sensor, and what is the predictive management uh, that you can achieve? So I cannot yet answer your question, but is again, the question is important. In order to address this question, we are determined to acquire all of this information and use predictive model to see what is important and what is not. Well, it looks like 
we're out of time, but this has been really, this really impressive body of work you've shared with us today. So thank you. And thank you for coming and talking to us on your promotion talk day. I, I hope the practice was worth it for you. <laughs> okay, if everyone will just uh, give me a round of applause and thank you. And next week we'll be hearing um, from the Target Malaria Group. So um, same time, same place next week. Thank you for your time. Bye.